So it's Mark 4 and verse 35. And the same day when the even was come, he saith unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him even as he was in the ship. And there were also with him other little ships. And there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? We trust the Lord to bless the public reading of his inspired truth. There's two other portions of Scripture, of course, that uh, tell of this particular instance uh, in Matthew 8 and also in Luke 8. And so I will refer uh, to them as I go through. We read of two occasions the Lord calmed storms on the Sea of Galilee. This was the first. There are those who have taken the time to harmonize the Gospels for us, which is very useful because reading through, at times you cannot at times see the sequence of things. But they have taken the time to endeavor to set the sequence and harmonize them. And what they would tell us is that this was an extremely busy day for the Lord. And you get that even in the the inference of that in verse 35, and the same day. The Scripture emphasizes the same day. And you can look back through chapter 4, where we have a record of the Lord's uh, parables and so on. But right into chapter 3, they believe uh, that these were all in the one day. We have the Lord dealing with a multitude of people. We have the Lord healing the sick. We have the Lord casting out demons. And it says in verse 10, For he had healed many insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. He was casting out demons and evil spirits and healing the sick. He was choosing the twelve from verse 13 of chapter 3. And he was preaching and teaching throughout. This was an extremely busy day for the Lord. We notice the reaction of the religious leaders. If you glance in chapter 3 at verse 6, it says, And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So at the very outset, as the Lord engaged in his ministry and he began to touch and bless the lives of the people, we see this opposition from the religious leadership. They wanted to destroy him. If you look down to verse 22 of chapter 3, it says, And the scribes which came down from Jerusalem said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. If you look at verse 30 of the chapter, Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. And they accused the Lord of being demon-possessed. His power was coming from the devil. That's what they were saying. This is the religious scribes. And so we get this hostility to the Lord at, at, at the uh, outset of his ministry. They're determined to destroy him. They're making accusations against him. And then if you glance at verse 21 of chapter 3, And when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, He is beside himself. 
you look at verse 31, there came then his brethren and his mother, standing without, sent unto him, calling him. Now here we have something which seems strange. Here's those who are described as his friends, perhaps friends and family. And they don't understand. They don't understand as the Lord was presenting himself as the Messiah and giving signs of his Messiahship and he was blessing the people. They didn't understand. Indeed, they thought he was mad. Of course, we know his brethren didn't believe in him until after his death, burial, and resurrection. We see the reaction, and we would assume in verse 31, his, his brethren and his uh, mother, perhaps in the CMV, and they didn't understand. It's amazing where opposition could come from. Perhaps many here have been brought up in a Christian home and have had that influence of that kind of upbringing, which is a wonderful blessing, and perhaps come to know the Lord through that influence. But many have not had that experience. I know myself, in my situation, I was saved in a family where there was no, none that were saved. Uh, yes, we were sent to church. Yes, we were sent to Sunday school. I don't recall much gospel, although there, there may have been some there, but I don't remember it very much. But when, it, when I got saved, there was a reaction. You haven't got yourself saved, have you? I don't like that word saved. And you see, although, you know, I thank the Lord for my upbringing and the a loving home I was brought up in, they didn't understand just like this situation here, they didn't understand the Lord. And very often, believers, when they're saved in a family where there's no other Christian influence, really, it can be difficult. And opposition can come from all kinds of places. This is the reality when you serve the Lord. Whenever you stand up for the Lord, you'll find, indeed, you'll be amazed at times where it comes from. Move into the verses we read together in chapter 4. I wanted to touch upon those few things. I want you to see the direction as you think of our reading from verse 35. Notice where the direction came from. It came from the Lord. Let us pass over onto the other side, the Lord said. Now, it doesn't seem to be a command. It seems to be perhaps like a suggestion. Yet the disciples treated it as a command. Now, one commentator makes the point here that you see, for the devoted heart, the Lord's wish is surely a command, is our command. If you have a devoted heart, you'll want, indeed, to carry out the Lord's wish. You see, our attitude to God's Word tells a story. The less devoted heart will perhaps have to find a thou shalt not before they'll be forbidden from doing something. They might say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't say that. They might say, you know, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not gamble. You don't find that in the Bible. But the more devoted heart, the discerning heart will know that gambling is an evil that encourages greed, an evil uh, that takes advantage of the vulnerable. There are those who are snared to it, hooked to it, just like drugs, and it destroys lives and destroys families. Gambling is an evil, and surely we should step back from it. We're to abstain from all appearances of evil. Our attitude to the Word of God is so vitally important. Some might say there's support, uh, claim support in the Bible for drinking alcohol, drinking wine. 
They'll say, Paul said, a little wine for thy stomach's sake. He said that to Timothy. But, you know, the devoted heart will know that, of course, Paul was speaking medicinally. In those days, the oil and the wine were sometimes the only remedy they had for their conditions. And uh, there's no doubt it was used in that vein. And it was, he was speaking in that vein. And, of course, we know that drink is a terrible evil. Alcohol is a terrible evil. And surely we should step back, even for the sake of our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ, we should step back from it. No doubt about that in my mind. I remember years ago in my job, there was a, an army chap used to come and liaise with us a few times a week. And he would come in sometimes and he'd say, oh, what a great night I had the night before. And, but I'm suffering now and he had a headache and he, had, he didn't feel well and so on. And one day I turned to him and I said, you know, the Bible says you're not wise. And uh, he looked at me and he said, I don't believe you. He wouldn't believe me. So I turned him to Proverbs uh, 20 and 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And he couldn't believe it. He's not wise. And then in the time after that, when he came in, he used to say to me, I know I'm not wise. You know, there was a time I wasn't wise either, but I thank the Lord. The Lord delivered me. We see here, they launched forth, it says, in Luke's gospel. Even as he was, it says, in Mark's gospel. They moved immediately. When they sent the multitude away, they dispersed them, and then they followed the Lord up into the boat, it says, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 8. There were other little boats. Now, I'm a bit bemused. I don't know where they ever went to. We don't, we're not told. Maybe they turned back. Maybe they... they they saw the coming of the storm and maybe were able to turn back. But we don't read about the little boats. We don't know how they fared because the Lord was in uh, a bigger boat, it seems, than theirs. But they don't appear after that. We see the direction here. They were directed by the Lord to the other side. I want you to see the eruption here. It has been suggested that there are two possible sources to this storm. One is natural and the other is supernatural. Naturally, these storms erupt in countries like that, where there is a hotter climate and where there are mountains and so on, where that is that kind of environment, you'll get the movement of the hot and cold air, and, and you'll find that storms can be whipped up and they can erupt out of nothing. We had that experience many years ago when we went to Italy. I'm sure many of you have been to Lake Garda. We were walking along the lovely paths in Lake Garda, right along the side of the lake, and there's nice little cafe areas, this lovely place just to walk uh, and enjoy the good weather. And we were doing that one day, and we walked away out the distance, and uh, there was a little area with a little, few little shops and so on, and we were going to stop off there. And then we noticed they were pulling down the shutters on the shops. And then there was people taking off in a moped out of the area. And we thought, there's something strange. Is it a half day or something? But then... All of a sudden, it just the, dark, the darkness just seemed to come down, and all of a sudden, we were hit with, a, with a, an eruption of a storm. And we had to try to get into a, a little canopy area where there was coffee being sold, and we got in there, and then we were beckoned into the solid building because it erupted. And you wouldn't believe the furniture outside, the chairs and the tables were flying everywhere, and also a tree was taken down just down below. So it just erupted out of nothing. Went on for about 20 minutes. It seemed a lot longer. 
But that's the kind of thing happens naturally in that particular climate. But you know, as we think about the supernatural, God sends his storms. We know that from Scripture. We read of instances of that, and we wouldn't be surprised at that, that God can send his storms. But also the powers of darkness can send the storms. The devil can send his storms. And when you look at what the way the Lord rebuked the storm here, rebuked the wind, we would believe that this was a satanic storm. The Lord, the Lord was going across the other side. He was going to Gadara where those demonic men were. And it seems there was this eruption, this opposition as he crossed over in the storm. The old enemy, the devil, will send his storms into our lives and to endeavor to hinder us and to mar us and indeed to destroy us if he possibly can. But always remember God is sovereign and even his Satan's storms can be turned to our benefit. Again, we're reminded that Christ directed them into the storm. It was the Lord's direction that they found themselves in the storm. Their faith was being tested. Dear friends, the reality of our faith will be tested. That's, a, that's what we'll find. Storms and trials and troubles will come. They may not be sent by the Lord, but he is sovereign, so he has permitted them, and we can we assume there is a purpose. The trial of our faith is more precious than gold, says Peter. How important it is the way we react in the midst of the storms whenever they come. We see the direction the Lord sent them to the other side. We see the eruption. I want you to see the exhaustion. This certainly was a, a great tempest, Matthew says. It's described as great in Mark and it's megas uh, in the Greek. It was indeed a very severe storm because the boat was been covered with waves and was filling up. This was a frightening experience for the disciples, and some of them were hardened fishermen, so we can assume it was pretty bad, but Christ was asleep. Now, this is the only occasion we read of our Lord sleeping. As they sailed, he fell asleep. How exhausted the Lord must have been. My emphasis at the beginning was the fact that it was the same day. The Lord had been preaching and teaching and casting out demons. The Lord had been giving himself to the people. The Lord had been facing that opposition, that hostility, and he had been facing even his own family and friends who didn't understand what he was doing. And now at the end, it seems, of the day here, he is absolutely exhausted. Here we see the humanity of Christ. Of course, a few moments later, we see his deity as he stands and he rebukes the wind and calms the sea. Here we see the wonder of deity and humanity blended perfectly in one person. A divine person already existing, becoming what he never was before, without ceasing to be what he is eternally. Oh, the wonder of it. Christ must have been exhausted to sleep through such a storm. Friends, spiritual work can leave us feeling empty and exhausted. If you give yourself to spiritual work, if you give yourself for the service of God, I want to tell you, you will experience this. I don't care in what aspect. When you endeavor to be faithful in witness, 
As you endeavor to live for the Lord, there will be opposition. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness or wicked spirits in high places. Why are all these ungodly agendas being driven today? Driven by governments and driven by the media and driven by everybody, it seems. All these ungodly agendas, the green agenda and the perversion agendas. Dear friends, wicked spirits in high places, being no doubt. The enemy is at work in these days. And this is what we face. I remember when I first started to preach, we lived in Newton Ards. We were members of Newton Ards Baptist at that time. And was given opportunity to take a few meetings here and there. Taking a young people's Bible class. But things developed and I got invitations to go up the country to preach. And so I got in the car on the Lord's Day and away up the country and preached in the morning. And then I had hospitality because of the distance. And then came uh, back in the evening and preached again. And then I got into the car to come home and I felt so low and empty. I said to myself, I don't think I'm cut out for this. Little did I know, little did I know what was going to happen. But anyway, I'm not cut out for this. You know, at that stage, I, I didn't really comprehend what you're entering into. Whenever you engage in spiritual work, whenever you're endeavoring to serve the Lord, you're entering into a battle. That's the reality. And, and over the years, I've come to realize the prayers of God's people is so vital. We just can't manage without the prayers of God's people. And there's some folks who are so faithful, so faithful in prayer. After I retired, stood down and got the bus down into the city. Of course, it's free. You just put the little card up and you get on the bus down into the city center. I got off the bus. And I noticed Donegal Place, somebody looked familiar. And I walked down with my wife. And it was a brother from the Templemore Hall. I hadn't, I'd left the Templemore Hall 17 years before. And as I approached him, he was so delighted to see us. And he knew about the fact that we'd retired. And he says, you know, I pray for you every day. 17 years ago, I left the Templemore Hall. I pray for you every day. It's not too many could say that. And I believe he was being honest. We were in his prayers. The prayers of God's people is so vital in the work of the Lord. We see here the situation. We see what the Lord was facing and how he was exhausted at this particular time. Storms come. The Lord was in the stern of the boat. He was in the back of the boat. Perhaps the disciples surely thought things were out of control. Things were beyond him, but they called upon him. They went to him. Notice the supplication. The supplication here. His disciples came to him. And they were right to come to him. It wasn't wrong to come to him. Dear friend, when the storm comes, you come to the Lord. You call upon the Lord. No, no, it wasn't, that wasn't the problem. You see... We read in, uh, I'll just read it to you in Psalm 107 and verse 28. 
Then they cry unto the Lord in their trouble, and he bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves are off or still. There's no one else we should turn to in the storm but the Lord. It wasn't wrong for them to come to him. No, that was not the problem. Let's always come to him. The wonderful thing is he was there, he was on board. The wonderful thing was he was there. And that's true of every believer. The wonderful thing is, friends, whenever the storm comes, whenever the trouble comes, when you find yourself in difficulty, he's there. He's on board. He's with you. He's promised never to leave you nor forsake you. Not so for the unbeliever. When I think of this old world, and it's a dangerous old world at the present time. It's a troubled world. I fear for folks that don't have the Lord on board. They don't know him. But dear friends, he's there. Now, there certainly was a problem in what they said, because they said, carest thou not that we perish? You don't care, Lord. Now, they shouldn't have said that. But sometimes, perhaps, folks might feel that. Like the old hymn says, Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song, as the burdens press and the cares distress, and the way grows weary and long? But the answer comes in the hymn, doesn't it? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Yes, he cares, dear friends, casting all your care upon him because he cares for you. We have a gospel illustration here. I want you to see the illustration. We could preach the gospel from this text. Lord, save us, we perish. To those in the boat, they were about to perish. If Christ didn't save them, they were going to perish. They felt as good as dead. And I want to say to you this morning, if you're without Christ, without Christ, you're dead in trespasses and in sins. Without Christ, you're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Oh, that you might realize your jeopardy. Oh, that you might realize, dear friend, the situation you're in. And cry out, Lord, save me, I perish. You see, that was the case for many of us, wasn't it? When we came to Christ. Those were my very words. Lord, save me. That's what I said. That's what I cried. Perhaps you cried something similar. But you called upon the name of the Lord. You realized you were perishing. You see... Sinners need to realize they're perishing. When we preach the gospel, we must emphasize sin and its consequences and judgment and hell. These things are vital that folks might realize that they're perishing. They need a Savior. They're never going to appreciate all that Christ has done on the cross of Calvary if they don't realize their jeopardy and realize their great need. Christ brought calm. He brought peace. He's the only one who can do that to the individual. In the book of Acts, we read that they preached peace through Christ. Peace can be known in the heart. Now, there'll be no peace in this old world until the Prince of Peace finally comes. When he finally stands upon the Mount of Olives and it divides asunder and he smites the nations that have come against Israel and he delivers little Israel, all those things will will take place one day. There'll be peace then when he establishes his kingdom. And friends, believers, we'll be there. We're going to reign with him in that day. What a future we have to look forward to. Of course, we're 
not looking for the tribulation and all those events. We know they're coming. We're looking for the Lord coming to the air when we'll be caught up to meet him, to be where he is. Christ calmed the storm simply by his word. He spake and it was done. His word was powerful. You look at Genesis chapter 1 and you see God said. That's all it required. God said by the word of the Lord, Lord, where the host uh, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Just by the word of the Lord. The word of God is living. It's quick and powerful. It's energizing. It's penetrating, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Friends, the Word of God is a wonderful treasure. What a treasure we have in this old Bible, this King James authorized Bible, taken from the received text, preserved by God, with the emphasis upon every word being inspired. The Lord Jesus said every jot and tittle is inspired. These modern versions, which are paraphrased, have no such emphasis. Let's hold, dear friends, to this old book. What a treasure it is. God has blessed it and will bless it in the days ahead. Notice Christ's rebuke here. He rebuked the sea, rebuked the wind. It was forceful. This was evil at work. And the Lord firmly rebuked it. We need to rebuke evil. We look at preachers in churches today and they're silent. We often hear about the four main churches in the media. All the four main churches have made a statement about this, or they've come together about that. You never hear them saying anything about the killing of the unborn. You never hear them saying anything about the other ungodly agendas that are being propagated in these days. Not a word. They're silent. They're weak and watery and apologetic. We need to rebuke evil just as we see the Lord rebuke the storm here. Christ's rebuke included two words original, in the original, but they're translated into three. Peace be still. Peace is simply silence. The Lord said silence. Be still means to muzzle. He just muzzled the old devil and the powers of darkness. Clearly it was a rebuke to them. We have three other occasions that we read of Christ rebuking in this way. Two of them will not be surprised. They related to demons. Mark 1, 25, Mark 17, 18. It was, about, it was dealing with demons. But there's a surprising one. He rebuked a fever in Luke 4, 39, Peter's mother-in-law. And so it would cause us to suspect perhaps there was some kind of devilish or demon involvement even in that fever that Peter's mother-in-law had when he dealt with it in that particular way. I want you to see the intervention here. Both Mark and Luke's account tell us that when the disciples sought the Lord, uh, Lord's intervention, the boat was full of water. So a miracle was needed. Sometimes God allows everything else to be taken away, everything else that we might trust in. Because you know, friends, we're all the same. We end up trusting in other things. We have that tendency to trust in other things, and sometimes the Lord has to take them away. And it got to the stage here in the boat where these disciples couldn't trust in anything else, only the Lord. And sometimes we need that in our experience. We need to face that trial or that trouble that we might cast all our care upon Him 
that we might rest only upon the Lord and not upon other things or even ourselves. We think of the children of Israel when they came to the Red Sea and they seemed to be hemmed in. There seemed no way forward. Pharaoh was coming with his armies. He was coming to destroy them, undoubtedly. But they had to step forward. Moses lifted the rod and they stepped forward. And as they did so in faith, the whole sea opened up. Right at the last minute. And very often we see throughout the Scriptures, many of God's servants were made to wait. Very hard to wait. We are so impatient. Sometimes things are left and we have nothing else to do but trust only the Lord. And that's so vitally important. Remember David. David was anointed to be king. king. He was going to be king one day. Then he, of course, defeated Goliath and how he was married to the king's daughter and he was best friends with the king's son and it just seemed that he was in the right spot just to slip into the throne whenever the time was right. But that was not to be the way. God took away everything. Took away everything else that he would trust in. He found himself been hounded and hunted by Saul, it seems, for ages. That was not God's route for him. Sometimes the Lord takes away those things we might lean upon and trust in that we might trust only him. There was a great calm. Normally, whenever the wind stopped, the sea continues to be rough for a while, but not so in this case. This was, of course, a miracle. We notice the reaction. Matthew tells us that the disciples marveled. Luke says they wondered, but it's the same original word. They were amazed with admiration. Amazed with admiration. Sadly, that was not the reaction of the people that I pointed out earlier on in the earlier verses of chapter 3. That was not their reaction to the healing of of the man in the earlier verses of chapter 3. They plotted to kill him, to destroy him. They they accused him. They, they, They responded to the Lord's miracles with agitation and annoyance. And friends, don't be surprised as you share the Lord, as you witness for the Lord. uh, You know, you find that people are often annoyed and agitated so easily. I've found that over the years. How easily they get annoyed and agitated. Don't quote that book to me, I've been told at times. Don't quote that book to me. And friend, of course, there's no other way but to share the Word of God with them. They were agitated. But the true believers here eh, marveled and wondered at Christ and his word. The disciples feared exceedingly, it says. Now, that's not the same fear as they had in the boat. It's a different word. No, this is the fear that is the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. This is a reverential fear that eschews evil. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The disciples were obviously growing in their knowledge of Christ. They had much to learn. Dear friends, the longer I go on, the more I realize I have so much to learn. You can never exhaust these things. Paul could say that I may know him. That I may know him. That I may know more and more, as the hymn says about Jesus. The Lord didn't scold the disciples for calling him, but also for their fear and lack of faith. He had directed them. He was on board. Surely that should have been enough. Their faith was small. They may have thought it was big. 
It says in the Proverbs, if thou faint in the day of adversity, thy faith is small. The problem with the disciples' faith was that they had not paid attention to his words. Now, listen to this carefully. He had said to them, cross over to the other side of the lake. He had his word. They should have realized no matter what, they were going to get to the other side of the lake. And we see this in the disciples in, in other times because the Lord told, told them about his death and his resurrection. He foretold them what would happen, that he would be taken and crucified and he would rise again. But when it came to it, they didn't remember. They didn't, they didn't take it in. And the problem arises with us when we don't take in the Word of God, when we do not pay attention to God's Word. It affects our faith, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. As the psalmist says, you need to take heed to the Word of God if you want to cleanse your way. Are you taking in the Word of God so vitally important that we are, we are taking in and uh, holding on to the Word of God. If we fail to do that, it'll lead to being led astray. It'll lead to wilting in the day of adversity. Friends, the Word of God is so vitally important. The Lord said to the disciples, where is your faith? Luke 8 tells us. A good question for us all this morning. Where is your faith? Where is your trust? We read in the Proverbs, Whoso trusteth the Lord, happy is he, is he. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man or put confidence in princes. We read, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Friends, let's be sure that our trust is in the Lord and in his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank thee for your word. And we confess that we know so little. And we ask that we might learn more as we spend time in the word of God. Bless thy word to all our hearts in the Savior's name. Amen.